Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy. And we are here on April 19 to talk about week nine around college baseball. It was a big one. There were those two huge in-state rivalries featuring top 10 teams as Mississippi State and Ole Miss went at it in Starkville and Tennessee and Vanderbilt had their series in Knoxville. There was a significant series in the Big 12 with TCU and Oklahoma State. Uh, Plenty of action around the country. We're going to get to it all here on this edition of the the podcast. But first, I got to let you know that the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, like I said, big weekend. There were those two huge rivalry series in the SEC that featured top 10 teams. Uh, there was that, that TCU sweep of Oklahoma State. Louisiana Tech and Southern Miss went at it again. Big series for Conference USA. Uh, there was some bit of a shakeup in the American that I uh, hopefully will have some time to get to. Uh, but Joe, we got to start with LaSalle, which is in first place in the A-10 just a few months after the program learned that it was being cut. Yeah, heck of a season for LaSalle, man. I saw on Twitter yesterday that their, their head coach, David Miller, said that basically every game for that team is game seven. And, you know, that's I understand what he's what he's getting at there just because I have to feel like it feels like that a little bit. You know, we talk a lot about we have talked a lot about how there seemed to be like a, a greater appreciation. And now you're kind of in the grind of the season. So it probably didn't feel quite that way. But back in February, there was this kind of renewed energy around college baseball because players and coaches and fans and, and game staff and, and everybody else appreciated having it back in their lives. I have to feel like this has kind of been like a season long version of that for LaSalle that they understand that the end of the road is coming up in a very real way. And I, I could see how that would be, that would be motivating. And I'm really fascinated to see if this team can, can pull this off and at the very least get into the A-10 tournament and maybe make a little bit of a, a run there. Uh, so, you know, kudos to the Explorers, really, you know, not, not, not uh, satisfied to just kind of play out the string here. It seems like they're motivated to go out with a bang and good on them. LaSalle has been fighting the, uh, the decision by the university to eliminate the program after the season pretty hard. I mean, most places do, but LaSalle, I feel like has been pretty aggressive and trying to create something of a, a PR campaign to, uh, to, to get the university to reverse its decision. I don't know how successful it's being in, in that endeavor. The university seemed much, it wasn't the typical program elimination it was a situation where they looked around and were like we sponsor too many sports and aren't good enough at any of these sports like we want to be a a athletic department that sponsors fewer sports and then we're better at some of them so trying to figure a way to engineer a reversal of that kind of decision seems challenging to me but you know we'll see uh but they are LaSalle has 20 wins already Uh, this is the fastest I, I believe it matched the, the LaSalle information was a little, a little shaky, whether this just matched the uh, 
the the fastest they've ever reached 20 wins in program history or whether it actually happened faster in 1985. But regardless, it's the fastest they've gone to 20 wins. They're 20 and 11. Fastest they've gone to 20 wins in more than 30 years. And they're off to a six and two start in conference play for the first time in a really long time. They're on pace to set a program record for wins. Like we'll see how all of this goes, but uh, they are having just a, a stellar, what probably is final season of Explorers baseball. So shout out to those guys who are grinding at it in uh, in a way that, you know, very few teams and players around the country can really even understand. And, and I certainly can't uh, begin to, to really fully appreciate what, the difficulties that they're they're going through on a day to day, as uh, over the last seven months, not just the season, but but since they learned that news at the end of September. All right, Joe, let's uh, let's get to these SEC series. Um, you had Mississippi State hosting Ole Miss, and the the Bulldogs won the series. They uh, both of these series went down to a, a rubber game on Sunday. And that was, that was really nice uh, just to have that kind of drama on the weekend. And, and so Mississippi state gets it done on Sunday in comeback fashion. They, they come away with the series win. They have not lost a series to Ole Miss since 2015. They're 16 and three against Ole Miss in that time. So continuing their domination of that, that state's rivalry, uh, was what Mississippi State did this weekend. But it was an exciting adventure to that point. Doug Nikhazy threw a one-hitter uh, for Ole Miss on Saturday in a 9-0 win to, to set up that rubber game. Uh, so it was, a, it, was, it was a very entertaining series, hit the new dude. And then you also had Tennessee hosting Vanderbilt in what we were calling the biggest edition of that rivalry series in in its history they came in both as as top 10 teams and uh they they played a, a very interesting series as well Vanderbilt bounced back from its series loss against Georgia a week ago to win the series they have not lost a series to Tennessee since 2016 uh Kamar Rocker was really good on Friday Tennessee used a barrage of home runs to win the, the game on Saturday evening in the series. And then Vanderbilt um, kind of pulled away on, on Sunday, won comfortably, I guess, uh, you know, did, did a lot of work in the middle innings there to, uh, to, to take home the, the series win and move into first place in the SEC East. So Joe, uh, I don't, we can start either place. Where, where do you want to go? Starkville or Knoxville? We'll go to the Magnolia State first. I found that to be uh, – both were very good series. I found that to be the more intriguing one, I think, from start to finish. Just did, It did kind of have, like, these interesting twists and turns throughout the, throughout the series, not just on the, the full level, but on the individual game level. You know, you, you mentioned it going to a rubber game on Sunday. I, I told you last night when we were doing the rankings that – you know, that, that beginning for Mississippi State, right after Ole Miss goes up 4-2 to two on a home run, just seemed like the most inevitable thing I've ever seen in my life, where you were like, this, this, this game is, is so, so, so far from over here. And it's easy to say now, knowing what happened, but it's also just that, you know, it, it's clear that, you know, Ole Miss and their bullpen is, is you know, getting, trying to get linked out of their starters and then just really hoping they can get to Taylor Broadway and hoping for the best at that point. 
and they just didn't quite get there on Sunday in terms of getting to Broadway in time. And I guess you could nitpick about, and I saw Nick Suss at the Clarion Ledger wrote about this a little bit for his story after the series, but you know, I guess you could have gone to Broadway earlier. What I just don't know that it matters because unless you thought he was closing that game out, um, they would have had to find outs elsewhere. Yeah. So they got five and a third from Drew McDaniel who moved into the Sunday starter role for the first time and he pitched well. And then I guess Mike Bianco said they needed two outs. They were trying to steal two outs. And I'm not entirely sure why McDaniel himself couldn't provide them. I guess uh, with him still, you know, he's been a starter, been a reliever. Like maybe he didn't have quite the pitch count to get those last two outs. Maybe they saw something. I don't know. But they got him out. They're, they're just trying to find two outs to get the ball to Broadway for the final three innings. He had not pitched to that point on the weekend. He's capable of multi-inning stuff. Uh, he's done that before. So there, there were, I guess the plan was to give him a nine out save. Uh, they ultimately couldn't get those two outs. And this is a real problem for Ole Miss. And uh, honestly, what I, what I took away from this weekend, and like we, we've talked about it before, we kind of knew it before that Ole Miss was short in the bullpen but they are one to two to maybe three, but certainly one or two pitchers short of being what would be a really outstanding team. And if they can't develop those next couple pitchers to bridge from the starters to Broadway uh, over the next month, this is not a team that's, that's going to have the, it's just not going to be able to reach the ceiling that the, we thought they had coming into the season. Yeah. And it's kind of funny that this, uh, well, funny, funny is probably not the right for the word that Ole Miss fans would use, but it's, it's interesting that we, you know, there's a lot of worry when Tim Elko goes down about what they're going to do offensively. And, and I think there, there will probably be times when that rears its head. I mean, I guess you could make the argument, you know, in the Friday game, for example, they, they scored just two runs and, and lose that game, but there will be, I think times when that does become a problem, but like for the most part, the offense has done enough. And the starting pitching this weekend, I mean, you mentioned they, they put Drew McDaniel in on Sundays and uh, in for Derek Diamond and, and McDaniel threw well enough to win that game if things had gone a little bit differently. So, you know, Ole Miss is doing a lot right. And then it just goes to show when your bullpen's a little bit short and starts to get exposed a little bit, um, it can really uh, gum things up and make you look bad because it's a team that, that probably got enough starting pitching to win a series, probably got enough offense to win the series and just not being able to string together enough outs after starting pitching was lifted on Sunday in particular was ended up undoing all of that. And it, it kind of feels like a little bit of a, not just from a bullpen standpoint, but just in general, I mean, it's been a tough schedule, but it's starting to, to be a, a deal with, with Ole Miss where they're in these series against the best teams on their schedule. And they just really haven't let, let me get rid of the qualifier. They just haven't won any of them, you know, lose a close series of Florida, lose a competitive series with Arkansas, lose a competitive series with Mississippi State. Um, you know, they they do have some softer series coming up, but you know how the SEC is. It doesn't necessarily get all that much softer. And I think that's going to be a challenge for them moving forward is, okay, we believe in the talent. Like, I think you and I are on the same page there. We believe in the talent. This is a good team, but you do have to finish series and, and get some and win these games against some of the better teams on your schedule if you want to achieve the big picture goals you have for a team in 2021. Yeah. And you know, the, the, if Ole Miss is a team that if they can stay to their script and their script is 
get seven plus out of our starting pitchers, basically. If they can stick to that script, they're really hard to beat. Doug Nikhazy looked fantastic on Saturday. Uh, Gunnar Hoagland wasn't quite as good on Friday, but it was a quality start. He threw seven. It was it was enough, more than enough, probably to to win. And you know that you can't ask for a whole lot more out of out of your starters than what Ole Miss got this weekend. McDaniel five and a third, really good innings on on Sunday as well. And you know th- they just got slightly off their script. And it was that window was enough for Mississippi State to take advantage. And we should note that, like, while Broadway, if you look in the box score, he's credited with two and a third innings and no runs, and uh, he's their closer, and and his numbers are are very good all season long. He's one of the best closers in the country. He did give up what proved to be the game winning hit uh, in that Sunday game. He gave up a, a bases loaded triple to Tanner Allen. Now he, he inherited all three of those runners. He came into a really tight spot, uh, but he wasn't able, you know, best on best Tanner Allen got the best of him. And, you know, so it's not even a situation where like they couldn't get to their closer. And then by the time they got to him, it was too late. Like they did, they handed Broadway the ball with the the game tied. uh, And it was, that's still not good enough, but it wasn't, he 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 did give up the what would prove to be the game winning hit and finding a bridge to Broadway is is the biggest thing here like that is that is what they've got to figure out a way to do and uh, you know I don't I don't know they uh, they're going to have to find answers soon they play LSU this weekend at home and you know LSU has not been good in SEC play so you know maybe this is a, a chance to get right but then they have South Carolina. And they have Vanderbilt still on their schedule. Both of those series are at home, so they do have that going for them. But uh, they got they got a couple tough series left here. And just overall, though, even if they come through the SEC looking good, I mean, they can still host. That's all on the table. But if they don't find a better bridge to the back of the bullpen, they're not going to, you know, get to Omaha, which is what you know the, this program so desperately wants to do right now. On the Mississippi State side, I I continue to come away impressed. It seems like a team that just really kind of figures things out. You know, they they the, the offense has been up and down, but they, you know, Tanner Allen with the, the big hit in the big moment, and and the, the offense has outbursts periodically where they'll they'll look like a really good unit. It just they you know their their struggle is stringing that together game after game after game, and the pitching is for the most part very very good. Uh, you know, the, the depth is really good. The, the quality on the, on the top end is excellent. And they'll occasionally have these weird little blips on the pitching side where, whoops, you know, that game didn't go well. Um, I guess that's everybody, though. I mean, that's college baseball for you. But um, And they seem to kind of just match those elements together pretty well where, you know, the, there are games where the, the, the pitching staff needs to get picked up and the offense will do that for them. And they're, they're, the, the opposite is true. There's games where the – the offense just really isn't clicking, but they'll get shut shut down work from a number of different players, and and they end up winning kind of a, a low scoring game. So it's it's a team that that really seems to have a good sense of just doing what they need to do to win games, and I think that's a that's a really intangible quality, kind of a, a squishy 
thought there, but I do think there is something to it that it's a team that does a pretty good job of, of figuring out, okay, you know, what kind of fighter, like a boxer, you know, you feel each other out, you figure out what you need to do and then, and then you get it done. I think Mississippi state, again, it's, it's, it's an intangible thing, but I think they do a pretty good job of, of figuring that out, measuring an opponent and then figuring out what they need to do to win that game on that particular day. So the thing that struck me this weekend for the dogs was that they really went as the stars went. And, you know, that maybe isn't the most uh, profound realization, but if you look at, at the games, you know, on Friday, basically the offense was their top three hitters exclusively. It was Rowdy Jordan, Tanner Allen, and Cameron James. James drove in four runs. I think Rowdy drove in the other and Tanner Allen scored a couple of them. Uh, the rest of the lineup didn't do a whole lot. Christian McLeod pitched well, not amazingly, but he pitched well as the starter. And then two of the top bullpen arms, including Landon Sims at the back of the game, came in and threw four scoreless. Like that was that was basically just the stars of Mississippi State coming in and, and getting it done. And then on Saturday, nothing went right. Will Bednar had a poor start. Nobody could hit Nikhazy. And so they lost nine to nothing. And then on, on Sunday, you know, it was Tanner Allen, the most accomplished player on the team coming through in a huge spot again against Ole Miss's best reliever, getting it done that way. Um, you know, and, and Jordan again had a good game. Cameron James was uh, was hitless on, on Sunday, but uh, you know, for the most part, it was it was the stars doing star things, and and that's why Mississippi State won. I don't know, you know, is that sustainable? Do they need to find some more depth? Like maybe, maybe not. But that was it, it was a weekend in which the stars defined uh, the 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 moments for Mississippi State. And as long as those guys are going to come through, uh, you know, it, it, these are for the most part veterans. We're, we're talking about Tanner Allen and Rowdy Jordan, like two guys that have been in that program for a really long time if they're they're going to be able to come through in the clutch like that that that's going to take mississippi state a, a pretty long way it was a big deal that too that you know you add rowdy jordan to that mix and that's a name we know but it's worth noting that you know he was mired in in a, a really difficult slump to start this season and as of i wrote it in the top 25 recap i forget what the number is he went into the arkansas series hitting something like 223 and now he's hitting 316 so um you know all it takes maybe is if if, if the guys who are hitting now keep that up and you add one or two guys in the mix. Now you're, now you're really talking. So um, it's a process, you know, coaches say it all the time and, and we sometimes are guilty of just kind of like hand waving it away as like cliches and stuff. But um, you know, you, you try to play your best baseball at the end of the year. And you know, if they can bring along one or two pieces on offenses as the season comes, you know, the second half of the season comes to a close um, maybe we're talking about a, a different offense. So I, I think you've, you've, the embodiment of that has been what Rowdy Jordan's done in the last month or so. And now that the goal is to, to maybe bring along a, a couple of his friends to do something similar. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's what happened in, in Starkville. Um, you know, it, it was, uh, it lived up to, to its billing. It was, it was a great series. It, it sure looked like the best rivalry in college baseball and, uh, I, I think, uh, I mean, Ole Miss fans probably didn't have a very fun weekend, but I, I enjoyed uh, watching watching that series unfold. Joe, let's uh, let's head up to Knoxville now, where Vanderbilt won that series against Tennessee, and uh, it, it was it was a big thing what what Vanderbilt was able to do here because they lost a series to Georgia a week ago. And I don't want to make too much out of it. Like teams lose series. We knew it was going to happen, but it was the first time Vanderbilt had this season 
lost a series and they did so at home. And like we mentioned, they, they did so by giving up like 25 runs uh, to, to a Georgia team that is not what we, we don't think of as an explosive offense. And now they had to face a Tennessee team that came into this weekend uh, as the co-national leader in wins and, and that hadn't had a hiccup really all season long. And Vanderbilt, they responded. Kamar Rocker came out, did his thing on Friday night, uh, certainly looked like vintage Kamar Rocker. And, you know, Tennessee had no answer for that. Nobody has an answer uh, to that particularly. And then, you know, Tennessee punched back, though, on Saturday. They became uh, the first team to, to win a game that Jack Leiter started. Um, they didn't, Leiter didn't take the loss, but uh, they, got, they got enough home runs in, in that game to, uh, to power themselves to, to victory and set up a rubber game. And look, Vanderbilt has only played two true rubber games all season long. This was the second one. We're, we're in week nine. They've, they've avoided it to this point. They did in week two. Uh, they played a four-game series against Georgia State that concluded with a doubleheader on Sunday, a very unusual situation, and that series was tied at the time, uh, but they also went into that Sunday knowing Vanderbilt did that they had Rocker and Lighter on the mound, as because if you remember on opening weekend, they got delayed until Monday, and both Rocker and Lighter pitched on Monday, so as they were trying to get those guys to the front of the weekend, they were doing it gradually, and so they had and rocker and lighter on Sunday. That's a, it's not really the same thing as an sec rubber game. And, you know, so the, the first time they did that all year was against Georgia and they lost that game and they didn't look particularly good doing it. So to have a week later, the same situation this time on the road against what was a pretty hostile environment, Tennessee had a, a good crowd in there and, and they were vocal uh, I thought that said a lot about this Vanderbilt team that they were able to to learn the lessons from a week ago and come out and and match or exceed the energy that that Tennessee and, and their fans were were bringing into that game. Yeah, and it wasn't a you know particularly pretty Sunday game either, and I think that's that's important because we've talked about before that, that Vanderbilt just doesn't have a third guy obviously no no team has a third guy they feel as good about as as rocker and lighter but even setting that aside Vanderbilt doesn't even really have a a third guy that that, that they feel uh seem to feel super confident in giving them giving them you know a, a start deep into the game I mean that's been a thing all season long that we've talked about before so you know if they're going to win these Sunday games um oftentimes it's going to have to be in, in games like this where you know they they they, they take some some body blows early, but they give them right back and, and give them back stronger. And that's kind of what happened here where their, their offense really, um, you know, came alive in the, in the, the early to mid innings and was able to, to, to build a comfortable lead to where um, they could just kind of nurse that lead and in, into the end. So I think it was, that feels like a little, a little like something of a blueprint for the way Vanderbilt is, is looking to win these, uh, these Sunday games. But uh, you know, it was shocking what we saw a couple weekends ago with the series lost to Georgia in part because it felt like we had all, we being the, the college baseball world had kind of all started to really kind of wonder aloud, you know, is Vanderbilt going to lose a series this year? They, they might not. And boom, there it was with, with Georgia. So a good bounce back for Vanderbilt. Obviously, one of the headlines of it being Rocker being back to form. I think the, the worries about some of what we'd seen from him and particularly that starting against Georgia, I think he, he went a long way towards showing that, hey, it was just kind of a blip. And now 
you know, Jack Leiter will have a similar challenge next weekend. Although it's, it's funny, we're, we're working on such a, 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 a warped sense of, of what a good start for him means that he gives up three runs in six and a third innings. And, and we, you know, it seems like Tennessee has just, you know, he's washed. So exactly. Yeah. Tennessee has solved some, some unsolvable puzzle suddenly because they scored three runs on him. So uh, that, that, that is the standard that he has set that that, that counts as having a lot of success against, against Jack Leiter this season. I mean, look, he's given up multiple hits in what, three straight games now. Like, right. I, like I said, it's over. Yeah. It's over for him. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Um, you know, I, the, the, the other thing that when we talk about Vanderbilt being unsettled on Sunday, I guess, is that they are, they're thin on the mound relative to a typical Vanderbilt team that we have come to know and love over the last decade, but they also are thinner than they were on opening day. And I mean, I'm sure a lot of teams can say that, but, but Vanderbilt has dealt with some injuries on the mound. This is not what they expected coming into the year. Like this, this wasn't the plan and, you know, they're, they're working through some things. And, you know, I, I talked about Ole Miss needing to establish another couple of relievers. I mean, I, Vanderbilt's not really in the same mix. They just kind of need to get some guys healthier. They, they know who the guys are. They just, they don't have them right now. And as they work back from that. I, I, I they'll, they'll definitely improve from that, but also it's, it's a little bit about, um, you know, Patrick Riley started the last few Sundays. He's got to learn that role uh, or Chris, uh, Matt McElvain has, has come in and, and, and pitched. Well, that happened yesterday, you know, as those guys grow into the roles that they have now, I, I think that, you know, Vanderbilt will, will be better off in terms of the pitching, uh, but it, it is, it, it's never going to look like it did in, uh, in 2019 when they won the title with, um, you know, just a, a set rotation like that with, with, with three lockdown, uh, you know, clear cut guys. And then if they ever had needed it, like they, they had guys who could have given them uh, starts coming in, in relief, like Jake Eater could have moved into the, the rotation uh, in 2019. Ultimately, he did in 20, but that could have happened in 19. Um, you know, they, they don't have that right now. And that's fine because they have, you know, two of the very best pitchers in the country leading the rotation. So they, they don't need to have, you know, a, a full on elite three uh, or, or whatever, but they'll, um, I, I do think that over the next month, as, as we progress towards the postseason, I, I think that Vanderbilt will find things a little more settled in, in the back half of their pitching staff. Uh, Joe, from a, a Tennessee perspective, Tony Vitello, after the game, said that this weekend was, quote, insanely valuable and that he literally couldn't put into words how useful it was. And, you know, he his point was that as – they're building a program that is trying to get back to national prominence. You know, obviously Tennessee has not been to the world series since 2005. They need to go through steps and some of those steps they they've hit already in 2019, they got to regionals and in 2020, they were off to a, a really impressive start and they got to see what being a ranked team felt like. And now this year, part of that is like learning how to play in these, highly anticipated 
big time environments, a lot of hype around the series. Um, you know, just just playing really notable series that you know a lot of a lot of times coaches throw out like, oh, it felt like a super regional. And you know, I didn't hear that from either Vitello or Corbin uh, in, in post game yesterday. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't true. Like this was maybe for the first time over the last two weeks here. Uh, playing playing Florida and then playing Vanderbilt that the Tennessee has really been in this kind of situation. And obviously this being the in-state rival, uh, the reigning national champions, everything that Vanderbilt is, this one was, was even, even bigger and more highly anticipated than the Florida series. Yeah, I think that, that that's probably the case. I think, you know, I think two things can be true. And, and I think he, he's, right. This is probably a very valuable experience for his team. It's still learning how to be this, this type of good in the SEC. I also feel like maybe the score lines don't show it and maybe I'm overselling it because I'll admit I, I, you know, I didn't watch every second of this series and not even close to it, but it really felt like Tennessee did a pretty good job here. You know, they, they obviously win the, the, the Saturday game and, you know, on Sunday, it feels like they're a better blade Tidwell start, which he's certainly capable of giving them, uh, you know, better blade Tidwell start from being right in that game. And then, you know, you just got beat by rocker on Friday and like, you wish you'd done better there, but that's, that happens sometimes. So. And, and Fatello also said that he kind of thought that they mismanaged Tidwell, that they maybe should not have sent him out for that fourth inning. And maybe if they go to the bullpen earlier, get a, get the bullpen a clean inning to work with, maybe that, that works a little bit differently. Yeah. So I just think, you know, I'm sure they, they are disappointed to not have, have won the series. Um, you know, obviously setting aside the, the valuable lesson learned in losing the series, but yeah, I thought they, they, they acquitted themselves fine. I mean, it's a home series and I guess you're always disappointed to lose those, but I don't know. I, I didn't come away with this thinking that, that anything had been exposed on the Tennessee side, except that, you know, they're a team that's still kind of learning to win at this level and Vanderbilt has, you know, this is something Vanderbilt does year after year. And I, I think what we saw maybe was kind of the difference in where those two teams are on the spectrum of being ready to win big in the SEC. Yeah. I, and I think that, like I mentioned, in terms of uh, the, the Mississippi State situation where the Stars came to play and Mississippi State went as the Stars went, like in, in a lot of cases, Vanderbilt Stars came to play. And if Vanderbilt Stars do that right now, they're just a really hard team to beat because – you know, rocker and lighter are who they are. And, you know, if the, the offense clicks in the right way, like Enrique Bradfield's full four bases uh, in Sunday's game, he scored from uh shortstop on a pop-up to, or scored from second base on a pop-up to the shortstop. Uh, like if he's doing that and, and Carter Young, uh, Homer scored a couple runs. If, if those kinds of players are doing those kinds of things for Vanderbilt, uh, you know, I mean, those are premium, premium talents. We're talking about probably four first-round picks there. So uh, over the next couple of years, I that when, when, if they're going to play like that, a lot of teams are going to have problems. All right, that, uh, that'll do it for those two series. We'll talk a lot more about all of these teams uh, throughout the, the next month, but especially Vanderbilt and Mississippi State because it is after you know playing their two major in-state rivals, they now this weekend get to play in college baseball Twitter's biggest rivalry uh, in Nashville. Mississippi State heads, heads to Vanderbilt. I know a lot of people on Twitter are very excited about that one. My mentions are already, uh, they're jumping. 
they're jumping. I, uh, I don't really know how it came to be that Mississippi State and Vanderbilt fans hate each other as much as they do, but they do. So we'll get into that more on the, uh, on the Thursday show here on the Baseball American College podcast. But we'll, uh, we'll have plenty more about week nine here in a second. First, though, check this out. All right, Joe, let's go over to the Big 12. There was a showdown here in Fort Worth. Oklahoma State went to TCU, and it was a pretty competitive series as sweeps go. The Frogs swept, but it was it was a tight one there, there in, uh, in Lupton. And, you know, I, big on big-time response for TCU. They had lost a series last week at Texas Tech. They, they really needed this one if they were going to continue to be like big time challengers in terms of the Big 12 title race. And they got everything they needed this weekend and more. Absolutely. I mean, this was um, this was the type of series that, you know, if if for, if uh, I almost said Fort Worth because I was looking at the box score here and showed the, the city name. Uh, if TCU wasn't the contender that we thought they could be. This is the type of series where they come and they're stinging a little bit from, from what happened against Texas Tech and Oklahoma State comes in here and, and wins the series. And now we've really got a, you know, a potentially a four-team melee for the, for the Big 12 title. But instead, you know, TCU comes in and, and pulls it out. And, and you're right to say that any of these games could have, gone, could have gone a completely different way. TCU just managed to kind of um, get the big hit at the right time. It, it reminded me a little bit of the Oklahoma State, Texas Tech, super regional from a couple of years ago where, you know, uh, of course, in that that was a two to one three game set. But it reminded me a little of that in terms of it, it was really just haymakers back and forth. Every, you know, it seemed like every run scoring was answered by the opposition scoring around the next time out. And in the end, Texas Tech got, you know, one more big hit than, than Oklahoma State total. And that was probably what did it. And that felt a little bit like like this weekend. Uh, but you and I talked about, I think my big takeaway here is that you and I talked um, before the tech series, or maybe it was uh, some other, I forget, but it's been recently. You and I talked about, you know, TCU is a team that really feels like it needs to, you talk about staying on schedule. It, it felt like a team that really needed to stay on schedule. And this was not that like they, now there's a difference in doing it against Oklahoma state, a team that we think is good, but not necessarily a big 12 title contender in doing and, it. And against, also has a schedule. It needs to stay on itself. Indeed. Indeed. So there's a difference between that and TCU being able to do this in the postseason in a super regional, for example. But I do think it was important that they were able to do that this weekend because Oklahoma State's not any any sort of slouch here. But it's a big statement weekend for TCU. The offense continues to to roll a little bit. Um, they came through in a lot of big moments, and I, you know you come out of this thinking that you know here is TCU is, is sticking around. The series loss in Lubbock is probably just the series loss every team takes in Lubbock and, you know, TCU's full speed ahead still. Yeah. It's uh, it, it was interesting just that every, every time they needed a clutch hit, it seemed like they were, they were able to find it. They, uh, they pull away on, like, if you just look at the Sunday score, like, and you hear us talking about how close it was, that that's probably a bit confusing, but they pulled away and, the eighth inning and honestly I wondered if they were going to go from losing a game in the the middle of the eighth inning to run ruling uh Oklahoma State uh all in all in one inning it 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 unraveled very quickly for the pokes there at the end of the game uh and and as a result 
Oklahoma State is now six and six in the Big 12. They dropped out of the top 25. If you look at their resume, it's a whole lot of uh, like good things, but not nothing really outstanding. Like they have solitary wins against Tech and against Vanderbilt, but they lost those series. They beat Wichita State twice on opening weekend, but we'll talk to this talk about this in a bit, but like, I'm back to wondering like just how good the shockers actually are. Um, you know, two Oh and one against Grand Canyon. is nice, but you know, like, okay. So it's, it's a lot of things like that on, on that Oklahoma state resume. And they're now six and six in the big 12. And I think they're probably done in the big 12 race. They've lost series to tech and TCU. They get, they get the horns this weekend at home. It's an absolute must win. If Oklahoma state has, any hope of, of continuing to, to be a legit contender. Uh, but even, even a series win against the horns would, would still leave Oklahoma state probably uh, at least three games adrift of the leaders in, in the big 12. So uh, they're, they're just kind of running out of real estate here. Um, and and you know, they're still a really good team. They're, they're going to go and, and they're going to be a, a difficult regional opponent for someone but I, I think right now um you know unfortunately for them they they had to play road series against tcu and texas tech and going one and five in those series is uh it's not going to get it done i think you put it exactly right with oklahoma state you know it's it's a team that's going to be tough in a regional as a as a two seed probably it's a team you're not going to want to see the other thing regional. like if you look at the rpi right now like they're still in hosting range but there's again six and six in the big 12 and is the if they if the Big Twelve manages, I think this this is a team that maybe gets hurt by the early hosting. Like they're going to have already played all of the Big Twelve contenders and therefore taken all of the losses that you would take on that and not been able to to buttress it uh, with some of the lesser teams in the conference. And then what if they got hot in uh, in the Big Twelve tournament, which Oklahoma State has done before? You know, it's it's a home game of sorts for them. Like that they. they they really could have used a good stretch run to host, but they aren't going to have that opportunity this year. And as a result, I think this is not going to go down as a host for, for the Pokes. It doesn't seem that way. And I think, you know, maybe Oklahoma state fans, you get excited about the idea of, well, maybe we do get hot and we end up being one of those, maybe there's a host team that falls flat and you end up being a, a traveling one seed. And, and that, I suppose that's possible. I just have a hard time imagining that scenario where that, barring big collapses from the announced hosts. I just, maybe I'm being a cynic, but I just have a hard time imagining that happening. But but that's a, obviously a conversation for, for another day. But it, it is a team that's going to be not a great draw for some host in, in a regional because, you know, they've got two guys in the rotation who have been extremely good this year in Justin Campbell and Parker Scott, who can beat just about anybody. And they've got, you know, a veteran reliever and Brett Stanley on the back end who can get them out of any jam they're in basically. And the offense is inconsistent, but the one thing we know about this group is that they can, they can put runs on you quick, that they have games where they run hot and they can bury you under a pile of home runs. And so um, this is a team that if they, if you catch them hot, uh, they're going to give somebody trouble. Um, the other side of it though, is that they don't have the depth on the mound necessarily. And the offense has been inconsistent. So there are also times as we've seen where they can run really, really cold. It's also a team I think that's, you know, capable of, of being 0-2 in a regional if, if the offense isn't there and they don't get excellent starts from Campbell or Scott or, or whoever else they, 
they throw out there. So, you know, good team, uh, a regional team, certainly uh, not a great team, but, but one that is capable of, of causing people some problems once they get into the postseason. On the TCU side of things, they're now 10 and two. They are tied with Texas atop the Big 12 standings. Texas was playing non-conference this weekend against Abilene Christian. That went about what you would expect it would go. Um, these two teams play in Fort Worth in a few weeks. Uh, Texas obviously has fish to fry between now and then, uh, starting this weekend in Stillwater. Uh, but Joe, sizing this up, I'll also note here that Texas Tech went to Morgantown and beat West Virginia. That's often a tricky road series uh, there in the Big 12. Tech passes that test, and as you've heard me say a million times, different team outside of Lubbock. And, oh, by the way, they got some really bad injury news this week uh, in terms of, of learning that that they're, they're going to be without a few key players for the, the rest of the season uh, in, in all likelihood with, with Dylan Noisy and Brandon Birdsell and – Kurt Wilson is uh, out for probably the rest of the regular season, it sounds like. So they're, they they did not let that news affect them uh, th- this week. But what do you see now? I guess, who is your Big 12 favorite? Is it still the Horns that we said it was last week? Or, or did TCU change your mind at all with uh, such a big statement this weekend? Yeah, I think – at the risk of being a little bit of a prisoner of the moment, because ultimately we're talking about what, like we expected TCU to win two or three there and they swept. So we're talking about a swing of, of one game, which I don't want to downplay that that can make a difference, but, but here I am going to say that, you know, maybe TCU's changed my mind a little bit here from the standpoint of they do have Texas still and the, the, the conference title may come down to that weekend in May in Fort Worth, by the way. So that, that is a feather in their cap. But outside of that, the remaining Big 12 series are Kansas, West Virginia, and Kansas State. Those are three series they should handle. Now, West um, Virginia is on the road. West Virginia is on the road. And, you know, West Virginia is talented. And it's tough to play on the road at West Virginia. So that is that is not nothing. I'll, I'll grant you that. But they they have a relatively reasonable road here. They've, they've already gotten two of their tougher series behind them. Um, whereas you look at what Texas has in front of them. They have the road series in Stillwater. They have Texas Tech the weekend after that. And then there's the big series against TC on the road. And that's just a really tough road. So Texas hasn't been tested in Big 12 play the same way these other teams have. And I do wonder a little bit if that catches up with them. If, if I'm handicapping it here because of that, I think Texas is going to take some lumps here. It's inevitable. They're going to lose some of these next nine Big 12 games. I think I might give the edge to TCU here with obviously the ultimate decider being that series in May in Fort Worth. Yeah, I do like that they have the home field advantage in that. Um, I have previously been giving Texas the edge based on the fact that they get tech at home and so that they can be the contender uh, that, that is best equipped to beat tech. But now... TCU is sitting here at 10 and two, having already played, like you said, some of the toughest teams in the league and has a home series against the Horns. I would still give Texas the edge here. Uh, I, I just think they're the more complete team. What happened last weekend is still weighing on my mind with, with regards to TCU that for the first half of the weekend, things went great for the second half of the weekend, things couldn't really have gone any worse. So I, I just wonder, do they have the depth to, to go head to head with uh, a really good Texas pitching staff? Uh, and 
a Texas offense that is starting to round into better form. Like I, I would still have hesitations about that, but the fact that, uh, you know, they, they have the easier on paper path ahead. I mean, that, that, that does have to count something count for something for the frogs. All right, Joe, let's, uh, let's take it over to conference USA a place that, that, you know, and love. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about Louisiana Tech and Southern Miss four-game series for the second time in three weeks, this time in Ruston. Louisiana Tech won the series in Hattiesburg a few weeks ago to open Conference USA play. This time, Southern Miss gets a, a little bit of revenge in that they split the series, and that was probably enough for Louisiana Tech to, you know, maintain everything that it had going into this a hosting spot control over the conference usa race and, and all the rest of it but also was just enough for southern miss to kind of keep its nose stuck in in everything yeah i kind of felt like this was almost of these eight games and it's funny that we think of these blocks of eight games because there's another i'm sure we'll talk about this in the, the preview episode later this week but we have another interesting block of eight games that we're kicking off in cusa between old dominion and charlotte this weekend so it is kind of interesting how the we've got these the two really the biggest matchups in each division are, are being played in these eight game blocks that are relatively close together. And in the case of Odie and Charlotte, literally together. Uh, long story short, though, I think this weekend played out in the really the best possible way for the whole of the conference, if you will, where, you know, if and maybe Southern Miss runs through the rest of the conference and it wouldn't have been a problem. But if they'd have gone two and six in those eight games against Louisiana Tech, I feel like I don't think was, they can host, you know, they certainly like they, can't host. They might be a two, but they can't host off of that. And they, and they, I think they'd be in a position too, where you're basically one, there's enough really rough RPI teams in conference USA that you're one bad three out of four losing weekend from all of a sudden you're on the bubble. And so I think this insulates them from a little bit of that. I think it also keeps them, you're right, kind of in a position where, Hey, if you really, if you're the team that runs the table the rest of the way, you can also work your way into being a host. And also, to your point, Louisiana Tech losing three or four, I think, would have been a little bit problematic from the standpoint of, hey, this is supposed to be like the team in CUSA this year. And maybe it's okay if that's not true and it's more of just a, you know, a, an amalgamation of, of these top four teams in, in the conference. Like, maybe that's okay. But I think CUSA would like to have that team with La Tech that's, that's been ranked. And, and if they keep winning, will have been ranked for most of the season. They, they fly into hosting. They're a team that, that hey, you know, let's dream big and, and they could get to Omaha, all of that stuff. Losing three or four at home, I think, would have cast some doubt onto that. And so I think coming out of it, having win, won five of the eight, I think is um, I think was, was big for them. So really, from a conference standpoint, like I said, I think that played out in probably exactly the way that, for the league's benefit, it best could have played out to keep everything kind of intact. I hate that like weather screwed this up because this was the that they rained out on Friday. This, this was probably the biggest series in Louisiana Tech baseball history, like in Ruston. And, you know, it, it just is kind of unfortunate that, that that got messed up a little bit and they wind up having to play the seven inning doubleheader on Sunday. And, um, you know, I just would have liked to see it play out in a, a more normal fashion, but it, it's remarkable three of the four games decided by one run. The other game was decided by two runs. Um, you know, 
that was tighter than it had been in Hattiesburg, but but that series was also a very close, uh, closely played series. I mean, I don't think like the way we think about Louisiana Tech because they have the win against Arkansas and the win against Ole Miss. We think about them in a different way than we think about Southern Miss, but I, the the line isn't as big as as we make it out to be. I don't think, and um, you know, I I don't know that that Southern Miss can get to the host line. They only have a couple weeks to to work through it, and they just don't have. You know, they're they're playing Western Kentucky and Rice. There's nothing on here that's really gonna gonna jump. Uh, th- this was their last chance to make a statement, so they they might just wind up being short. Um, you know, they, they have a win against Alabama. They have two wins against UConn, but right now neither of those things look as good as maybe they could. Uh, they did sweep ULL and sweeping the Cajuns still means something. Uh, but anyway, I, I, they might, they might fall just short, but like with Oklahoma state, I don't think anyone's going to be happy to, to draw Southern Miss uh, whether that's an Ole Miss team or, or whether they get to, to, take their road, take their show on the road a little bit more than that. Nobody's going to be happy seeing Southern Miss in their regional. Yeah, absolutely not. That's not, uh, not at all what, what, what you're, you're going to want to see there. It's the way they pitch. I mean, it's just, you know, if, if you're an offense that, that, uh, you know, catches Southern Miss at the wrong time, like they can really shut you down. You bring up a good point about the, the nature of this series, just incredible games day after day, you know, Southern Miss gets to go ahead and run in the eighth inning, the first game of the series, you have two one-run games to finish off the series, including a walk-off to end the weekend. Uh, so it really could not have been a better weekend of baseball in, in, in Ruston in terms of the games being super-duper competitive. Um, and, I, you know, Conference USA, I know it's, it's a little bit of a bit that, you know, I, I love this conference and I, I do enjoy this conference, but it's it's kind of cool to see a couple of things happening here where, one, this is, this is kind of a return to – what Conference USA was, different teams, obviously, but a return to co- what Conference USA was in a world before the American Athletic Conference ended up, you know, poaching a lot of its better programs in terms of, you know, they're talking about maybe two teams hosting here. The reality of the situation is that La Tech is in the driver's seat right now. And, oh, by the way, if ODU, one of ODU or Charlotte, this over these next eight games goes, you know, six and two or certainly something like seven and one in those eight games, whoever that team is, is going to be in position to make a really good case to host as well. So the fact that conference USA after, look, I've spent a lot of time grappling with the idea that like, you know, the reality of CUSA might be just, this is kind of a one, maybe two bid league uh, more often than not, you know, in a world where a program like rice, for example, is not operating at a level it once was. And maybe that's just what, because this league is so big and it's always going to have RPI anchors and all of that stuff. Maybe that's just what it is now. And this season has really bucked back and, and shown that, look, this is not going to be an every year thing. Let's make that clear. But this is a conference capable of doing something like this. And I think that's pretty neat. Would you say that you were raised on Conference USA? I was raised on Conference USA, man. I really was. That's, uh, now, it's not the Metro Conference, but it's, it's something pretty, pretty special. I was raised on old school CUSA. All right. Well, uh, like you said, we'll we'll have more Conference USA talk in the week to come here with uh, with that big ODU Charlotte uh, home and home start of the home and home eight game two week adventure on tap. Uh, let's uh, let's flip over to the ACC here. 
some interesting action in the conference, but most importantly, Joe, uh, reports of Georgia Tech's demise were greatly exaggerated. The Yellow Jackets, they go into Blacksburg. They win a series against Virginia Tech, keeping the coastal division race uh, open. Virginia Tech, Pitt, and Georgia Tech all separated by one game. And I guess we can't forget about the Canes now. They're a game and a half back. They swept Clemson. Uh, coastal chaos continues, basically. But Georgia Tech, a big series win here and a needed series win. They're 17 and 14 overall. Like we've talked about how weird some of the ACC records are, but that was that was really a necessary series win, not just to, to remain in the mix uh, for a Coastal Division title that I'm sure they would very seriously celebrate, um, but also just to, you know, kind of keep the record above water a little bit. They took a loss to Auburn in the midweek uh, and, and were, were really in a, a, a skid coming in. So to arrest that slide, this weekend against Virginia Tech uh, was uh, was much needed for the Yellow Jackets. Quickly, I want nothing more than for the regionals featuring Arizona and Georgia Tech to be paired off with each other. In Arizona, Georgia Tech super regional, the games might never end. They just go <laughs> on for days, like a, one of those like cricket matches that just goes on for days and days and days. With the the offenses those two have and the pitching concerns both those two teams have, like that would be. Um, even for me, that would probably be a little bit much, but, um, but yeah, just a, like the most for this Georgia tech team that has been so confounding at times and is just so flawed and like in, in very obvious ways, like this just was like the PA state resistance for this team this weekend, where, you know, you really start to write Georgia tech off and like you and I held on to them in the rankings because there's still some good stuff on the resume, but we're both just kind of like, is, you know, we came out of last weekend thinking like, maybe is this the sign that this team is really waning and, and maybe it's more like a, like a bubble team than, than we thought and, and all that kind of stuff. And then of course it goes in the road, a team that does not typically play all that well on the road, goes on the road to kind of a tough place to play on the road because Blacksburg is tough to get to and, and all that kind of stuff and wins that series against a Virginia Tech team that seemed like it was cresting coming into the weekend where they're, they're getting healthier and they're playing really well. And hey, this Virginia Tech team is really talented. And, and this, you know, it's not just this scrappy underdog team. This team is good. And, and of course, Georgia Tech wins that series. And oh, by the way, does so by scoring 15 runs, zero runs and 11 runs, which I think is just like a chef's kiss of a weekend <laughs> offensively. Um, but there's just so many things about like this, we should put this series in the Louvre, honestly, just because of how weird it was right down to the fact that Georgia tech is so reliant on getting at least one good start from either Andy Archer or brand Herter in a given weekend. Andy Archer did not do it in the first game of the series. Brand Herter did not pitch. So with that backdrop, you would think Georgia Tech was toast on the road against Virginia Tech, but no, they came out and, and won the series and God love them. Like they just, they continue to kind of, you know, no pun intended, ramble on. Um, and I, I believe just about anything with what this team is capable of this season, because it, it does seem like they're, they pull rabbits out of their hats right at the moment when you're ready to kind of pack it in and give up on. Them. Yeah, I, it was perfect for the ACC. It was perfect for the coastal chaos that, the ACC is is enveloped in. I would not like this series in the Louvre. Please do not sully the Louvre with uh, <laughs> this series. Let's send this to the MoMA. Um, it was 
it was strange. Like that, that's the bottom line here. Uh, but, you know, I, I can't say enough about, I guess, both teams responses here. You know, the, the, the Friday game, Virginia Tech, uh, you know, really took a, a big punch in that game and then came back with, uh, with an excellent game on Saturday to, to even the series. And then there after, you know, getting shut out um, on, on Saturday, Georgia Tech uh, does not, they don't wilt. They come right back here on, on Sunday and win a, a very important rubber game. And, and you know, so I, I just think that the way both teams took punches and, and kept punching uh, was, uh, was, was impressive. And, you know, it, I don't know. I don't know what it's indicative of, but uh, it made for made for a compelling series overall. Indeed, yeah. I, um, I, 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 again, I don't know what to make of it. If if I will inject like a little bit of uh, uh, some actual analysis here, I think with, with Georgia Tech now we don't know exactly what the deal is with with Brand Herder. I, you know, um, continue to effort that information, but uh, haven't seen anything official on him. They have gotten back in the last couple of weeks. Marquise Grissom Jr. He got a midweek start against Auburn. Didn't go super great, but that's, I mean, that, that's a tough spot for him making his career debut to go play an SEC club in Auburn. And so that didn't go super great. Uh, he did pitch well this weekend in relief, however, a um, couple of scoreless innings in the finale. And those were, those were big innings to close out that weekend. So uh, perhaps, you know, if, if you want to squint and look for some reasons for optimism, if, if you assume that Herter gets back at some point, and again, I, I can't confirm or deny, uh, but Marquise Grissom Jr. coming along, their most exciting recruit from on the mound this season, coming along and, and maybe being able to, to get healthy and stretched out and be a contributor, I think could, could go a long way towards helping. It's not going to fix the holes that they have on the mound. Like, I just think it's too flawed of a team on that, on that unit. However, that could help. And any little thing right now is, is going to help their pitching staff be in a better place. I would, I would definitely agree with that. They, uh, they need all the arms they can get there. Uh, let's hit briefly here on some other ACC stuff. Uh, Notre Dame wins a series against NC state and the Oma Irish continue to, uh, to chug along. And, and that's not the story here. The issue now is NC state, which looked like it had maybe turned a corner is uh, you know, I, going to South Bend and winning a series was always going to be tricky, but you know they just don't have much in the way of margin for error. And now they come home to play Virginia Tech. Uh, they really need need something this weekend, but now Virginia Tech also kind of needs this one. So uh, that one, they're in a tricky spot, but not as tricky as Clemson, which got swept this weekend by Miami. They are now 15 and 17 and nine and 12. And I'm not going to declare Clemson dead in the water because they've looked like they were down and out before this year, but that's now back-to-back series losses uh, at home against UVA. And then at Miami, they are on a six game losing streak overall. It's just, they're in a bad spot right now. And they go to Georgia on Tuesday before getting Wake Forest this weekend. Uh, Absolute must win against Wake Forest this weekend, which, uh, you know, is, it's a tricky team, but Clemson, if they're going to, if they're going to go to regionals, they gotta, they gotta get something this weekend. And then Pitt uh, with another nice series win against UNC. Uh, good on the heels though, for coming back after getting swept in a doubleheader on, on Saturday to, uh, to claim the series finale in, 
you know, remain at 500 in, in the ACC and UNC is not in, not in bad shape overall, but uh, just uh, another good series win by the Panthers. Oh, and I guess can't forget here, Louisville wins the series against UVA, uh, UVA won. Uh, the, the opener, Louisville comes back with a response. They needed that. We've talked about their RPI issues um, in terms of hosting and everything. UVA had been rolling. They'd won back-to-back series and, and looked like they might have turned a corner. This was always going to be a tough weekend for them, not getting swept, significant, uh, but it does make this weekend against Duke must win for sure. Yeah, I went into the weekend kind of thinking – you know, I, I spend some time over the weekend kind of thinking what I'm going to write about the coming week. And I start to, usually by like Saturday, I'm starting to formulate like a wide range of ideas and then I narrow them down as, as time goes on. And I went into Sunday thinking, you know, if NC State and or Virginia finishes their series win, because both were in that position on Sunday, if, if one or both of those finish that series win, like maybe there's something there about, you know, these teams that were, that we thought pretty highly of coming into the season got off to these pretty awful starts, honestly, in conference play, you know, Virginia was just inconsistency. NC state, it was that plus a COVID pause kind of at an inopportune time uh, really hampered them there. Maybe there's something to like one or both of those teams. Hey, here they come. Like, this is the push we've been, we've been waiting on. And, and we see this part of the reason why I find that fascinating is because this typically happens every year and the ACC is, is right for it because they're now less so this year, but there typically is kind of like an underbelly of the ACC where if you, your schedule just kind of hits right, you can make some ground. And, uh, you know, Duke in 2019 was a team that did that. I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but we appropriately laud Duke for getting to back-to-back super regionals. And, and I know I'm guilty of forgetting that in 2019, it was more of a bubble team than anything else. And they just, they played well in the postseason. And they deserve credit for that. But, you know, it's not like that was a top 15 team all year that, that just... Uh, you know, stayed consistent. So, and of course, both those teams lose those Sunday games and it's like, okay, well that, that idea is shot. And then now when you combine it with, uh, you know, Clemson getting swept at Miami, it's, um, you know, we talked about it being kind of some clear, some clear um, lines of demarcation here in the ACC. And I think we uh, continue to see that. And maybe we've talked about, you know, which one of these teams makes a little bit of a run the math would tell you that there's still probably a team in this mix that ends up making a run and getting the postseason, but it certainly doesn't seem like anyone is in a real big hurry to get it done. I mean, right now there are eight clear cut teams that I would put in into the field right now, Virginia tech, Pitt, Georgia tech, Miami, UNC, Notre Dame, Louisville, Florida state. After that you're, you're projecting, there's no one, there's no one else. And this is a, a conference that we had talked about, like certainly nine, probably 10, maybe even 11, which would be a record. And right now I'm looking at it and saying like, well, somebody's going to have to turn it around for any of that to happen. So uh, we'll see. Um, You know, also it is a goofy year, not, you don't have to necessarily be above 500 this year to get an at-large bid, all the rest of that. But you know, just the way some of these teams are playing, I don't know um, that you can expect much uh, leeway to, to be given for, for some of them. But we'll, uh, we'll see where, where it goes from here. I, the, the last note is that if, um, 
NC State had actually gotten it done against the Oma Irish. I mean, first of all, that would have been surprising. But second of all, uh, I would actually be able to complete my ACC circle of chaos. Right now, it remains a line. Notre Dame has not lost a series, so I cannot connect the circle. Just waiting for that to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen anymore. I mean, the Oma Irish are the Oma Irish for a reason. But if they do lose a series, as disappointed as I'll be that that happened, uh, I will be happy that I can connect my circle of, of ACC chaos. As a member of the media, I, I you know I try not to get involved in rooting for for teams or things to happen, but there's nothing I want more in life. Like football gets to <laughs> football gets to play this game every year. We're like you know you, you got the. the I mean, to be fair, I can complete the coastal circle of chaos which is what they focus on the most because you know clemson doesn't always lose but uh i i'm trying to complete the entire one yeah i mean they're part-timers just doing it in one one division i you know and i I get the limitations of they don't play as many games yada 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 but yes it would be i would be delighted if we were able to finish it off all right so that was uh the highlights of week nine there was plenty more happening around the country but those are those are the big highlights we've we've talked a lot already but one thing one news item dropped late sunday uh that we we should uh address here joe and that is new mexico coach ray birmingham announcing that he will retire at the end of the season um he has been an absolute pillar of new mexico baseball Uh, he's coached in New Mexico over the last six decades, over parts of the last six decades, 43-year career coming to an end, 34 of those years as a head coach, um, was the last 14 happening at UNM. Previously, he was a junior college coach, mostly at New Mexico Junior College. Uh, big-time success everywhere he's gone. And you know the Lobos, he took them – they had not been – to the NCAA tournament since I want to say 67, sometime in the late sixties. And he took them to the tournament for the first time in 2010. And they went five times over the next seven years, uh, which is a, a pretty remarkable achievement for that program. And, um, you know, just beyond, it goes beyond what he's done on the field though. I mean, like I said, he is, he is a, an absolute pillar of the baseball community in New Mexico. He's the winningest coach in state history. There's not a lot that he hasn't done uh, for for baseball in New Mexico, so he'll uh, he'll certainly be missed in that aspect. Yeah, tip of the tip of the cap to Ray Birmingham because he he really kind of was a magician in that New Mexico program. I mean, in he, the land of enchantment, indeed, a magician in the land of enchantment. Like my goodness, you're right. But um, yeah, he, he I mean he really did incredible work at New Mexico. I mean that. In terms of high-end success, the history of New Mexico baseball pretty much is the success that Ray Birmingham had. And, you know, it's postseason success, but you think about, you know, some of the players that have come through there, they've had legitimate drafts. You know, it's it's not, you know, plucky teams of underdogs, although they, they filled the roster out with that because you're not going to have a team full of dudes at New Mexico. But they've had first-round picks, and they have they've had a ton of guys get drafted get drafted in the first several rounds and it seems like annually they've got at least one guy who's who's in that in that mix so um you know he really kind of has changed the way that 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 we think about new mexico baseball and i think that's going to make one of the challenges for whoever um succeeds him here in this job because it's not an easy job um it's relatively isolated being in New Mexico in a state that doesn't produce, you know, Alex Bregman, of course, separate, doesn't typically produce a lot of, a lot of high-end talent. 
and you know they, they have you know between them and New Mexico State they don't have a ton of local competition um, except that you know Texas the teams in Texas and Arizona are, are close by and can poach a little bit but it's the facilities are um, limited let me put it that way um, they used to play in a minor league park with the Albuquerque Isotopes they now play all their games on campus which is you know a good or bad depending on how you look at it um, it's nice to have your own home field you call your own but um, it's, it's a limited facility and it's, like I said, isolated geographically. There's not a lot of history of success outside of what Ray Birmingham did. So in some ways he proved that you could do it there. Um, but I think there'll be concern that, you know, he was able to kind of spin some magic. There was a combination of, of him just being a really good coach and a really good evaluator, developer of talent. And also the fact that New Mexico was able to slide in at a time in the Mountain West when, you know, San Diego State wasn't rolling to the extent that it, it has recently under, under Mark Martinez and, you know, Fresno State had kind of hit a valley, no pun intended, after they had won their national title. Uh, so New Mexico was able to kind of lodge its way in there and kind of be the, the, the team in the Mountain West that was going to the postseason every year for, for a while there. And it hasn't just been able to sustain that quite to the same degree in, in recent years. So it, it can be done, but it's not going to be a turnkey deal for whoever comes in here uh, after Ray Birmingham. So I say all that to say that, you know, he deserves all of the uh, – all of the the adoration that, that he gets for the job he did because it was it was hard work to get done what he got done. Definitely some big shoes to fill there um, with the Lobos. Hard to at this point handicap things in terms of where they might turn, who they might turn to. We'll definitely be tracking that uh, as the the season draws to a conclusion and and the uh, the coaching. Uh, searches heat up around the country. I, I guess this is since we're already talking about this, Joe. Um, there've been 55, I believe the number is coaching changes in college basketball this year. They have about 60 more schools playing college basketball than than college baseball, but 55 changes is an awful, awful, awful lot uh, in a year where they're. You, you don't have to go back too terribly long ago that the people thought that this would be a a slower uh, year of, of coaching turnover in basketball. Um, I think, you know, having seen that, having seen football be a little, little having more movement than, than people had anticipated at the start of that season. I, I, I think that it's reasonable to think that baseball will, will catch some of that. It's a different deal, obviously, um, you know, buying out a basketball coach, buying out a baseball coach. These are two totally different situations. But uh, for anyone that's thinking that this might be a quieter uh, season of coaching turnover again, I, I think that we're getting more and more indications that that, that is not necessarily uh, going to be the way that this summer plays out. I would agree. And I think there's some, there's some competing um events that are kind of pushing and pulling on what I think the coaching market will be, because I do think that there are some places where maybe in a pre in a, in a play in a, a world where COVID did not exist, that maybe would have looked to make a change that now for financial reasons, uh, you know, maybe that move doesn't get made. But I think at the same time, there were probably moves that would have normally gotten made at the end of 2020 that got the can kicked down the road because of COVID that now will get made in 2021. So maybe those things offset a little bit. I also think that there is something to the fact that we saw a lot of, I don't want to say panic maneuvers because that's too strong of a word, but we saw a lot of really harsh changes get made in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic that now we've started to 
either walk back or kind of, I don't want to say look silly, but like just look at a place where a bunch of conferences canceled conference tournaments. And maybe in some of those cases that should have happened anyway, we can have that discussion another day. Now some team, those conferences are adding teams back to the conference tournament. The Southland did it, the Missouri Valley did it a little bit. Um, there were, you know, obviously big sweeping schedule changes. Um, so on the fear of what are our revenues going to look like in a world where football's get definitely going to be different. And we saw that basketball is very likely to be different. And we, and we saw that to a lesser, but still some degree. And there was a lot of fear involved in that. And now I think it's just as easy if you're an athletic department that gets to June, for example, and says, man, we, you know, if, in, you know, we'd be looking at a change for our baseball coach right now. And, you know, in normal times, we'd make this change and we're getting back to normal times now. I think there's a lot of athletic departments that are looking at, hey, we're going to have a full stadium or close to it in the fall. That'll bring a return to, to revenue. And then basketball should be in good shape come uh, the winter months. And I, so I think it's just as easy as it was to be a little bit scared at the beginning of the pandemic and say, we have no idea what this is going to financial harm this is going to cause our athletic department. I think it's just as easy now as we start to come out of this for that to be a reason to make a change in that, you know what, like we're getting back to a little bit of normal. And I think there's a reason for optimism about what our revenues are going to look like and what our financial future is going to look like. If we weren't, are going to make this change on merit, we should just go ahead and make it now um, rather than holding off for another year. Well, I will definitely be, uh, be tracking that. We'll, uh, we'll see where it goes here. Uh, lots of uh, potential for changes around the country. We'll see what actually uh, comes, comes to pass here uh, once, once the season concludes in uh, late May slash early June for, for all of these teams. So we'll, we'll have that covered over at BaseballAmerica.com then. Until then, you can read plenty about the on-field action. Uh, off the bat is there right now. We've got a new top 25. You can check all of that out over at the website. You can follow Joe and me on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And we will be back here with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast on Thursday, previewing week 10, uh, an intriguing week. We've uh, mentioned some of the highlights already. Uh, we'll definitely get into uh, Mississippi State and Vanderbilt and Charlotte and ODU, but there are there are more than that uh, in, in another exciting week of college baseball uh, to come. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, you can hit that subscribe or follow button, whatever it is on, uh, on the specific app. And then the, the, uh, the episode on Thursday will come straight into your phone when, uh, when it drops. So Look, uh, look for that then, and we, we appreciate all of our subscribers. Uh, we also appreciate Repsoto for presenting this podcast. Thank you all for listening. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time on the Baseball America College podcast.